the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Can't get on the air with Bob? Leave a message. 216-525-1806. Hour number two is underway now at nine minutes past ten o'clock. Thank you for being with us on AM 1420, The Answer. So... The verdict was probably not a huge shock to a lot of people, particularly millions and millions of Americans who saw a 9-minute and 29-second video-ish of Derek Chauvin with his knee on the neck of George Floyd. Members of the jury, I understand you have a verdict. Members of the jury, I will now read the verdicts as they will appear in the permanent records of the 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota, County of Hennepin, District Court, 4th Judicial District. State of Minnesota Plaintiff versus Derek Michael Chauvin, Defendant. Verdict, Count 1, Court File Number 27, CR 6. We the jury in the above entitled matter as to count we the jury in the above entitled matter as to count one unintentional second degree murder while committing a felony find the defendant guilty of April this verdict agreed to this twentieth day of April twenty twenty one at one forty four PM. Signed juror four person, juror number nineteen. Derek Chauvin, as you know, a little drama there from uh, the judge as he took his sweet time opening the envelope. But Derek Chauvin, of course, as we all know, was found guilty on all three counts against him. He is awaiting sentencing as we speak. But the question remains in the minds of some, did Derek Chauvin really cause the death of George Floyd, regardless of how the video looked? Well, our next guest uh, made an impassioned argument in an article for the American Spectator actually last August. It was last August, just a few short months after the death of George Floyd, and then, of course, a medical examiner's report, and then a second autopsy report. Uh, George Perry wrote a piece for the American Spectator that said, it is very clear that Derek Chauvin did not cause the death of George Floyd. And now that we are one year past the death of George Floyd, and America has burned for the better part of a calendar year, as a result of that incident, it's time to talk to George Perry about it. George Perry is a former federal and state prosecutor, uh, spent six years as chief of the Police Brutality and Misconduct Unit for the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office, which investigated and prosecuted use of deadly force by police. Clearly, this man is an expert, and that's why we welcome him now to AM 1420, The Answer. Mr. Perry, good morning. How are you, sir? I'm doing fine, Bob. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. Um, I read your article twice, um, and i got to tell you, you know, especially now that I'm reading it after the conviction, or convictions of Derek Chauvin, um, I find what you wrote fascinating, and I find a lot of what you wrote to be continue to be unanswered. Even though we have had a trial, even though we have had deliberations and a verdict announced, I still think you raise a lot of very important questions here that were unanswered by uh, the outcome of that trial. 
Can you give me a general sense of of that part of this before we go into specifics about what you wrote? Were you surprised that the results came back as uh, deliberately and, quite frankly, as quickly as they did? I was not at all surprised, uh, simply because the uh, defense had filed for a change of venue to move the trial out of Hennepin County, mm-hmm. where the city of Minneapolis is located, and that motion for change of venue was denied. And that forced the defense to go to trial in what I have termed in various articles that I've written, the Minneapolis war zone, where they had had extensive rioting and uh, civil unrest for the better part of a year. And in the lead-up to the trial, the uh, courthouse in Hennepin County was put behind concrete blocks and razor wire. They also fortified the police districts. They arranged for the National Guard to come in and patrol Minneapolis during the trial, and closer to the time of the expected verdict, they increased that presence. And the city of Minneapolis took many, many security steps in anticipation of the verdict. So the message was being sent by the authorities and, frankly, to anyone who had eyes in his head, they could see that if there was a vote or a verdict to acquit Officer Chauvin, the city was going to go up in flames again. So I've contended in the articles that I've written that there is no way that Chauvin could have a trial in Minneapolis before a fair, impartial, and unintimidated jury. Mm-hmm. This trial was nothing more than a a theater production to cover up for the fact that what we really witnessed was the victory of mob violence and mob justice. Let me respond to that, if I could, by saying, that, first of all, I agree. It was not and could not have been a fair trial for the, the, the exact same reasons you state. However, if I'm playing devil's advocate here, I would ask this. Mm-hmm. Where could a trial have been held where that would not have been the case? Um, yes, they already had the violence and the looting and the burning and so forth and so on in Minneapolis. But if they had moved that venue and put and tried him in a different city in the state of Minnesota, anywhere, wouldn't the the protesters and the rioters, the Black Lives Matter Inc. and so on and so forth, done the same thing? They would have descended upon that town, city, jurisdiction, or whatever, uh, with the same threats. Basically, there probably would have had to have been the same uh, protections of property made in any location that they would have moved that trial to because of the threat. So, and as such, couldn't they then argue, or the judge actually argue, why change the venue when the outcome uh, or the threat of and intimidation of witnesses, intimidation of jurors, uh, and threats to the community would have been the same anywhere he went? Well, that's entirely possible, and the only answer I can and give to that is that I have been in contact with members of the bar out in Minnesota, because I, oh, look, I know very little about the state of Minnesota, but these these lawyers in Minnesota have indicated to me that if the trial had been moved to uh, rural counties up in the northern part of the state, uh, the the potential for disruption by uh, radicals would have been reduced, and there would quite pro- probably have been a resistance to that kind of behavior. One of the big problems here was that the the 
city officials, starting with the boy mayor of Minneapolis, um, were completely supine once the violence started. <clears throat> As a matter of fact, uh, in one of the articles that I wrote, I have a picture of uh, the the uh, mayor of Minneapolis kneeling before George Floyd's gold casket uh, and crying. And the, the city really had no effective response to the rioting, so the message was clear that it was going to be a free fire zone. The question remains whether or not a remote community in, say, in northern Minnesota would have taken the same approach to the rioting and whether or not there would have been actually prosecutions of people who engaged in that kind of violence. As it was in Minneapolis, mm -hmm. there were virtually no steps, effective steps, taken to quell the violence and to I think discourage the, I think that the role of, of intimidation. I think the role of race, though, George Perry, would probably have been an issue, though. You move it to a rural up in the northern part of the state, like you're talking about, uh, if it becomes a less than diverse jury pool there, the argument would be they moved it so that there weren't black jurors on the, uh, uh, you know, enough black jurors, rather, to convict him uh, the way there would have been in Minneapolis. You move it to a rural area, which is typically a little bit more white than than, than diverse, and that would have been an argument I would think they would make. But uh, we'll never know. They didn't move it. So let's let's focus on what we do know. I want to get into your article a little bit here. <clears throat> You write uh, from the very beginning, uh, quote, Moreover, far from publicly, brazenly, and against their own self-interest, slowly and sadistically killing George Floyd in broad daylight before civilian witnesses and video cameras, the evidence proves the defendants exhibited concern for Floyd's condition and twice called for emergency medical services to render aid to him. And to support that, you, you list a, a very, in very, in great detail, the specific transcript of the body cameras, uh, that the officers wore. So you're very, and you're right. Everything you said is true. They showed great concern for him from the beginning when they first encountered him and he started saying, I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Please don't put me in there. I'm claustrophobic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The question I have, and, and this is again what America has is, is all of that concern that they showed, which is provable by videotape and transcript evidence, is all of that undone by the perceived lack of interest in his health and in his comfort and in his care by George or by Derek Chauvin for nine minutes and twenty nine seconds? Is that perception? Does that outweigh any of the 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 video that we have of them showing concern for him before he passed away? Well, in terms of perception, apparently so. Um, if you if you look at what happened with the jury in Minneapolis, uh, and all of that comes down to the matter of presentation and and how you get the point across, and I'm not here to criticize defense counsel for Derek Chauvin. I thought he showed a great deal of courage by taking the case. Yeah. And he had a very difficult situation on his hands, but if you look at the record facts, the ones you've alluded to, what do we see? Well, first of all, the video that we're talking about was hidden by the prosecution for months while all of the rioting went on, and it wasn't until after things had gotten underway, because I was citing a transcript of, of the video, they didn't release the actual video until much later. And the video shows that the police officers, when they were attempting to get George Floyd into the squad car, 
really quite considerate of him. They he were. Was shouting, don't put me in there, I'm claustrophobic. And one of the officers says, well, we'll roll down the window on the squad car. Another officer says, we'll turn on the air conditioning. Mm-hmm. And when they were trying to get Floyd into the squad car, he hit his head. And so they called for an ambulance to come take care of, of that. Because he had a little cut on his head from where he banged it, you know, resisting getting in the car, right? Yeah, and then he winds up on the ground, not because of the police wanted him down there. They couldn't get him all the way into the car, and Floyd began shouting, I want to go down, I want to go down. So at that point, they made the decision to get him all the way out of the squad and put him on the ground. And <clears throat> at that point, they made a second call for an ambulance to come because they saw that he was deteriorating. And we can go into the reasons as to why his condition was deteriorating, but I contend it had nothing to do with the fact that Derek Chauvin was kneeling on the side of his neck. You go, you go, you go to great length, Mr. Perry. I'm going to interrupt only in the interest of yeah. time here. You go to great length in your article talking about those reasons why he was going down, why he wanted to go down, why he was struggling to breathe, and so on and so forth, which gets into the autopsies from the medical examiner and then the Dr. Michael Baden autopsy requested by the family. I want to get into that with you. I need to take a quick time out here first, though. So let me get okay. a time out, and we're going to come back, and I want to get into the specifics of what that, because I'll be, I'll be honest with you, full disclosure here, George Perry, I came on these airwaves uh, at the time of the start of this trial and at the end of that trial saying, Derek Chauvin is a bad cop. Derek Chauvin looked like he was just an inconsiderate, uncaring jerk, but he did not cause the death of this man. His drug overdose did. That was my opinion, and and that goes directly to the medical examiner's report, which I want you to speak on next. Right back with George Perry on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 1024, I'm going to continue now with George Perry. George Perry is uh, a former federal prosecutor and a state prosecutor and also spent six years as chief of the Police Brutality and Misconduct Unit for the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office. And he wrote a piece about George Floyd's death and who really was responsible for his death. Now, Mr. Perry, I want to quote here. I want to get into the to the uh, medical examiner's report here and the contradictory findings from the second autopsy performed by Dr. Michael Baden and Dr. Alicia Wilson, as you write. Now, one of the things I want to ask you about is, you know, you, you kind of lead into it with this. Moreover, prior to issuing the autopsy report, the Hennepin County Medical Examiner preliminary found that, prelim, prelim, preliminarily found that, the autopsy revealed no physical findings supporting a diagnosis of traumatic asphyxia or strangulation. He had underlying health conditions, including coronary artery disease and hypertensive heart disease. Quote, the combined effects of Mr. Floyd being restrained by the police, his underlying health conditions, and any potential intoxicants in his system likely contributed to his death. End quote. So, I guess the question I would have, and I'm sure the jury would, would, would ask, is if those underlying health conditions and intoxicants were part of the equation, but also the restraint by the police was part of the equation, does that not equal causation on the part of the officer? Well, as, as worded that way, possibly. But if you go further, and it's not in that article, I wrote about it in subsequent articles. Mm-hmm. In July of 2020, the Hennepin County Medical Examiner, Andrew Baker, was interviewed by the FBI. 
and that FBI 302 was not released until by the prosecution until October of 2020. And here is a summary of what Dr. Baker told the FBI. First of all, he could not provide an answer if but for the actions of the officers, whether or not Floyd would have died. He couldn't predict what would have occurred. And he did not know if Floyd would have lived but for the officer's actions. Now, this is what he's telling the FBI. He said he did believe that because of Floyd's heart disease and the intoxicants, which, by the way, was a fatal overdose of fentanyl, as well as the stress from the events that occurred with the Minneapolis police officers, was more than Floyd could tolerate. His heart was larger than it should be. But there was no evidence that Floyd's airway was literally blocked shut. And when viewing the body camera footage, Dr. Baker said the pressure did not appear to be directly over Floyd's airway. Floyd would have been unable to speak if pressure was directly over his airway. And he said that Officer Chauvin's positioning on Floyd's body does not fit anatomically with including Floyd's ability to breathe or airway. Mm -hmm. The absence of petechiae, which are... Uh, small ruptures in the uh, the blood vessels in the eyes and on the skin weighs against strangulation. And he said that the struggle between so, the officers and Floyd weighed into his opinion because physical exertion increases heart rate, releases adrenaline, and increases the respiratory rate as well as cardiac demand. All of these things increase the likelihood of a bad outcome. And then the final thing he said, which I believe I alluded to in, in that first article, mm-hmm. he said that fentanyl, and, you know, Floyd had a, this massive overdose of fentanyl in the system, fentanyl may cause pulmonary edema, and evidence of pulmonary edema was found during Floyd's autopsy. And he said by that he means that Floyd's lungs were heavy compared to normal lungs because they were full of fluid, that is the pulmonary okay. edema. So that's so. So this this is all picture. this is all from the this is all from the medical examiner. And again, I apologize for the short uh, uh, time that's here, okay. but the re-autopsy by Michael Baden, as requested by the family, mm-hmm. said that even without physical evidence of the traumatic asphyxia, such as broken bones at the in the neck, the compression of his neck and chest still caused his death by depriving his brain of blood and oxygen uh, and his lungs yeah. of air. They concluded the death was homicide due to the way he was being sued. So this is the issue here. I got a medical expert on one hand telling me this thing. I got a medical expert on another hand telling me this thing. Um, the jurors, the jurors, in my opinion, because I don't know which medical expert to believe, I I feel like I kind of have doubt. Do I not? I mean, I'm not I'm not a well, lawyer, but but I feel like there's reasonable doubt there because I don't know which 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 guy to believe. So I guess my I guess my judgment goes back to what my eyes saw, which was Derek Chauvin on the guy's neck for so long, casually waiting for the ambulance to arrive as the guy pleads that he can't breathe. Well, yeah, but and keep in mind, first of all, I have to preface this by saying I've been friends with Dr. Baden for close to 40 years. I've used him as a witness in many of my cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and we, we've, as I say, we've, we've been good friends. But what he said in his opinion was he was advancing, or his, actually his associate was advancing the theory that by kneeling on the side of Mr. Floyd's neck, that occluded the flow of blood-borne oxygen to the brain. What's interesting is that theory was not used by the prosecution at the trial 
of Derek Chauvin. Instead, they brought in a pulmonologist from Ireland who testified that the position of the body on the ground with mm-hmm. being in the, in the prone restraint position that the police had him in, that it was a matter of that positioning that caused Mr. Floyd's death. And let, let the, me the let me ask you this. Used, let me ask you this in, in summary yeah. here because it's 1030. I'm out of time. I want to go back to, again, the transcript that you have here from one of the body cameras and ask you very simply. Speaker 8, or excuse me, um, Speaker 8 says, I'm sorry, Floyd says, come on, man, I cannot breathe, I cannot breathe. Ah, they'll kill me, they'll kill me, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. Speaker 8 says, we tried that for 10 minutes. Floyd says, please, please, please. Officer Lane says, and this is the, the money line, should we roll him on his side? Chauvin says, no, he's staying put where we got him. If Derek Chauvin, in your opinion, had said, yeah, roll him on his side, do you think he gets convicted? I think it would have reduced the chances of conviction because one of the things that he was criticized for was not following procedure. The prone restraint position that they kept Floyd in was part of what the Minneapolis Police Department provided. But then it also provides that you roll the person on his side, um, in a, what they call a recovery position. And the fact that Chauvin did not do that, it continued with the perception that because he was right. kneeling on the side of the neck, that that was what was causing the problem. Exactly. And, and, and you know, it's, it would appear to me, based on everything else that you discussed, as far as the drugs in his system, you could have rolled him on his side, you could have rolled him on his back, you could have sat him up, it wouldn't matter. Those drugs were going to kill him. He was in the process of overdosing and probably having he, a heart attack as a result. He, yeah, he was but, in the process of yeah. having a heart attack. That's what killed him, was cardiac yeah. arrhythmia. And so, yeah... Uh, the last point I'll make, if you have time, is... I, I really don't, but I do want to make a point of your blog so people can read more about what you write okay. uh, about this. So I want people to follow George Perry and read more about this. He's written many subsequent articles about this at knowledgeisgood.net. That's the website, knowledgeisgood.net. And, Mr. Perry, thank you so much for your time this morning. Okay, thank you. All right, 1032, Lori Cardoza-Moore joins us next. France, here on AM 1420, The Answer. Okay, 1036 now. We are right back at it. Thanks to George Perry, former federal prosecutor, for uh, some inside look, an inside look at uh, the verdict. Uh, of Derek Chauvin in the George Floyd case that continues to lead to calls for the defunding of police and continues to put more and more Americans in danger. Now we want to talk about another issue. Uh, I want to welcome Lori Cardoza-Moore back to our program. Lori Cardoza-Moore is the president of Proclaiming Justice to the Nations, an extraordinarily important organization that continues to look out for the rights of Jews uh, and others, uh, both in the United States and in Israel. And she is also working very actively on behalf of all uh, persons who may be oppressed in the United States, including, by way of things like critical race theory, white people. Uh, Lori, thank you for coming back on the air uh, with us this morning. How are you? Bob, Francis, great to be back. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, this is a critical issue to the future of these United States. 
No question about it. I've got three main subjects that I want to discuss with you this morning, Lori. I want to talk about Israel, and I want to talk about the current state of uh, the hostility there in Gaza, the ceasefire, how legitimate it is, whether or not um, it's going to last very long, especially with the Biden administration continuing to bootlick Iran, which funds all of those um, terrorists in Gaza. Uh, I want to talk about that. I also want to talk about uh, uh, the, ho- holoca- the state of Holocaust education in the United States today. But let's start with CRT. You are working at least in Tennessee and Florida, as I understand it, on textbooks and curricula, and working to ensure, as best you and uh, others can, that critical race theory is not included in the curricula for uh, students in those states. Can you tell me about that and tell me why is it particular to those specific states? Yes, and you know, Bob, I also want to mention that we're working diligently also in the state of Ohio, California, Um, This whole critical race theory issue has just exploded. And the reason being is because we've been involved with other organizations to expose what is happening, the indoctrination that's going on in our children's classrooms. And really, this started a decade ago when we found anti-Semitic and anti-Israel content. As we continued to dig into the textbook with that information, we we saw anti-American, anti-Judeo-Christian um, content that that went against the very values of America. And I, I tell you, a, a decade ago, I was warning our state legislature in Tennessee that if we don't get rid of these textbooks in this curriculum, we're going to lose our country. And we saw what happened last year with the attacks happening in Oregon, in Washington State, we saw it in Wisconsin, all over the country. And it's because of the indoctrination going on in our classrooms. And critical race theory really has just shown up on the um, in our purview over the last year. It's been going on for some time, and it actually started in South Carolina with the professor there. And we've been doing research A lot of the information for your audience, they can go to our website at pjtn.org. We've got a lot of information there about this and the other, the the other um, uh, bits of propaganda that our children are being subjected to. The the sex, the sexual perversion, the pornography. I mean, Bob, you can't even make this stuff up. That this stuff is going on in our public schools anymore. But thank God. Yeah, it is very disturbing, yep. and I'm glad to know you are working on it here in Ohio as well. Um, you know, PJTN's mission statement says, uh, PJTN educates, advocates, and moves to activate Christians, Jews, and all people of conscience in building a global community of action and prayer in support of Jews and Israel. But it's so much more than that. Um, obviously, we all know about the historical, historical oppression of Jews that continues into modern day, obviously. Right. But you really are you know, engaged in, in defending all people who are oppressed, uh, whether they be Jews or whether they be uh, Christians or whether they be white people or black people and so on. And that's the part of critical race theory, <clears throat> excuse me, that is so frustrating because it appears as though the proponents of it and the Marxists who support it uh, and who perhaps, you know, even originated it, um, they're okay with racism as long as that racism is of white Christians, specifically white Christians. Creating critical race theory, which means you are either an oppressor or you are oppressed. There is no in-between. If you're white, you have no choice. You can't be oppressed because you're privileged. Therefore, you are an oppressor. That is oppression against the accused oppressors, is it not? 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Critical race theory is racist and it's anti-Semitic. And if you don't believe me, look at how they're targeting whites now. And now they're accusing whites of being racist. They are targeting the white population. And it's the reason why we started, Bob, with the Jews is because it always starts with the Jews. We can look throughout history, and mm-hmm. when a society will turn on its own Jews, it will turn on Christians, it'll turn on other people of conscience as well. And it's critically important that we look at what's happening and what's been happening in California. I don't know if you're aware of the <laughs> ethnic studies model curriculum, but it's the same thing. They tried four times to get it right with the curriculum in California. And we kept saying, we kept arguing, we were attending the the hearings, we submitted documents, papers, um, requesting that they not adopt ethnic studies model curriculum. It is reflective of the critical race theory. But they finally found a way, a little loophole, by including Jews, because they they didn't have Jews as a minority in California. (laughs) And so they finally included the Jews that are Jews of color. Jews who came from Arab countries, because they have a different skin color. So we'll include them, but we're not going to include the white Ashkenazi European Jews. No, because they fit the narrative of the white privilege, like white Christians. And so you see this block of people that are white. They can be Jews. They can be Christians. They can be, you know, Hispanic. If your skin is too white, then you are the problem. This comes back. I mean, Barack Obama was just talking about this on Stephanopoulos' show yep. the other day. Yesterday, I think it was. And he's, he's, he's convinced America that we have a problem with systemic racism. I would argue, Bob, we didn't have a problem with systemic racism until Barack Obama became president. And that is the truth. We have, yes, is there, are there going to be people that are racist? You better believe it. Are there going to be people who are anti-Semites? Yes. And our job is to try to change those, that viewpoint, to educate people. But are we against blacks in this country? I don't think so. When you have well, education... And you- I, I apologize, Lori. I, I was just going to say, well, the, the, the idea that this argument is coming from a black man who was elected president of the United States, that the United States is systemically racist against black people, is just the most absurd thing on its face that you can even imagine. It wasn't the black population that elected Barack Obama president. They're only 13% of the population, and only That's a small right. portion of that is of voting age. Barack Obama was elected president of the United States, a black man, by white America. How can That's we... Right be a systemically racist nation and and elect him not once but twice it's like goebbels if you repeat a lie often and often enough long enough people will begin to believe the lie and that's where we come in that's where we have to challenge this propaganda we we challenge the the content in curriculum um holocaust education uh civic standards we've been working thank god with governor DeSantis in florida um, we've worked on, on drafting Holocaust standards and rec- making recommendations to the Department of Education to address this issue of the Holocaust, because now we're even using the Holocaust as a way to rewrite history. And unfortunately, Bob, too many people now we're hearing, we, as we saw in Boca Raton a, a couple years ago, that principal in Boca who said, who told a parent, um, I can't say that the Holocaust actually happened. You know, there are people who don't believe that, you know, that really took place. And there are people that actually say, and kids, Bob, kids that say, um, we don't believe that six million Jews were murdered. We think it was a lot less. 
are you kidding? This is what's happening because the content being taught to our children um, through the textbook, through instructional materials, has permeated and has communicated a lie, disinformation, to make kids start questioning what is really historically accurate. Lori, who's who's behind that? Who who's behind the textbook companies? Who is funding them? Who is uh, who is manipulating them? Who is uh, essentially writing this fiction uh, and trying oh, to yeah. pass it off as 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 history? As history. The, yeah, the biggest purveyor is Pearson Publishers. They just recently changed their name to Savas, but HMH, HMH also. This and you have to think about this. Pearson Publishers is not a U.S. based textbook publishing company. Let that sink in, Bob. It is a British-based company. Their shareholders, their largest shareholders, include the Islamist government of Qatar, Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and Libya. Do you think, do we honestly think, that because those are the shareholders of the largest textbook publisher in the country, and remember, they buy up all the smaller textbook publishing companies, don't change their names because they don't want us to know oh, we have the monopoly on education. No, this is what is, is permeating our textbooks. It's why our children have turned on America, because they have rewritten history. And when we exposed this a decade ago, Bob, we started hearing from parents and citizens who saw similar content in their children's curriculum, and they contacted us. Of course, Ohio was one of those states. And that's why we are actively engaged in the state of Ohio to rid this because Ohio so, is a key it's a key battleground state politically it's it's a key state and so it's critically important that we mobilize parents and citizens to rise up to take back local control of their children's education. And even if you don't have kids in the public school system, doesn't matter, you pay taxes. You have a vested interest in what we are teaching our children. There's no quite well there's no question about it even if you don't have children you know you 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 may have you may have grandchildren at some point or whatever the case might be whether your kids are grown or you didn't have any you do have a vested interest in this. So here's what I I don't understand. We've got two different types of miseducation if I can use that word or that phrase. Um we have a British textbook company that is owned essentially by shareholders in majority Muslim countries, teaching Holocaust denial and Holocaust fiction, essentially, uh, in, in some textbooks. And then we have, we have critical race theory being advanced. So in other words, I can understand the anti-Semitic nature of the majority Muslim shareholders that are in that British, uh, British uh, publishing company. But then is it just coincidence that we also have the critical race theory, which isn't necessarily specifically about the Holocaust or about Jews, but about, again, essentially dividing people along racial lines, seeing race first, second, and always. Um, is, it, is that a separate group backing that type of textbook uh, uh, tyranny, or, no. or, 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 are they, or are they connected somehow? It's the same. It's connected. Look at Black Lives Matter. Let's use them as an example. Black Lives Matter is a racist group. Uh, 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 Breonna Taylor's mom just recently came out calling BLM a fraud. Yeah. That they, they were to stop using her daughter's name to raise money. 
We see this in others. But they say that. But she, but she said that in my. She said that I. Th- I think Lori Cardo's a more because she wasn't getting enough of it. The families of some of the black victims of police shootings, and that's, that's how they right. refer to them, need more money from Black Lives Matter. In other words, if they get paid, they won't criticize Black Lives Matter. So I don't put a ton of stock in that. Yeah, no, but you know what? It just goes to show the illegitimacy <laughs> of this group. They're not interested in really addressing the issue of racism. All they want, they saw it as a cash cow and a way to raise money. They raised $90 million, and where did the money go? To, to continue to further the Marxist agenda exactly. in our country. No, it's, it's unacceptable, and again, it's up to us, we the people. And that's why the audience needs to go to our website, pjtn.org. You need to sign up to get on the mailing list so we can mobilize and activate you. We've got a, a Facebook page. For whoever's still on Facebook, because there are still people that we're trying to reach to inform parents and citizens about this growing problem. And it's happening in every state across this country. Biden is pushing critical race theory. And, of course, critical race theory, you know, they're using it also to push this agenda against white America. They're trying to rewrite American history. This is critically important. If we do not know who we are where we came from, we will not understand our role and our destiny as a people, not just as a nation, but when it comes right down to our communities, our local governments. We've got an election coming up in 2022, and we have got to know who we're going to be supporting. Who are the school board members who are running? What do they believe? And if these people believe in critical race theory and that we have a a systemic racism problem, that's your cue, ladies and gentlemen. They need to be removed from office. And maybe it just happens to be you that's going to run against them. We have to take back local control of our communities and our children's education. If we are going to salvage this country for our future, for our children and our grandchildren, it starts with us. The Calvary is not coming, Bob. We're it. White Christians and Jews are indeed in the crosshairs uh, as much as they have ever been. In fact, perhaps more so because of critical race theory and because of what you described with respect to Holocaust education uh, or, or again, miseducation. I know that's not actually a word, but you understand the point. Last thing before you go, Laurie, and I've only got a minute here, so 60 seconds or less. Your thoughts on the fragile ceasefire right now in Gaza? When uh, you know, I, I don't know how much longer Israel, Israeli Jews are going to have to put up with this uh, because it just seems like as, as soon as Iran gets around to funding uh, the terrorists and Hamas with more rockets uh, than then they start up again. Oh, yeah, no, Israel should have gone in and finished the job. And unfortunately, the world tells them to back off. In 60 seconds, I, I can't go into the details of it. You'll have to have me back on your show. But I will say this, is that the terrorism in Israel, is, is the goal is to make Israel Juden Rhine. It is to eliminate the Jews from the face of the earth. It's to eliminate the Jews from the Middle East. We, as American Christians, cannot tolerate that. God will hold us, each one of us, accountable for standing by when our brother Jacob needed us in this hour. And if we don't stand up as Americans, if we don't demand our government stand with Israel, we can kiss this country 
goodbye. Fortunately, at least according to polling, while the latest conflict was going on, um, an overwhelming number of Americans stand with Israel. It is just the loud yeah, vocal Ilhan Omars and AOCs and others who stand with Palestinians uh, and, 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 and essentially uh, support and affirm their complaints about uh, their land, what they believe to be their stolen land. They get all of the headlines. But most Americans yeah. true, do, truly do support Israel. Uh, I'll yeah. tell people to do, as you said, go to pjtn.org. I'm looking at it right now, Proclaiming Justice to the Nations, pjtn.org. Lori Cardozamore is the founder. Lori, thank you so much. Great information. We will have you back on again soon to talk more about that. Bob, look forward to it. God bless you. Keep up thank the you. great work. Thank you so much, and you as well. 1053, right back. Well, uh, I did not leave any time for phone calls in the last segment today. I apologize, but uh, I could have gone another half hour or more with Lori Cardoza more. Uh, she tried to pack as much in as she could. She's good at it, by the way. She's really good at it, uh, getting as much as she could in in a short period of time. But really, those those three issues that we brought up we, we could be you know on one or two hour long conversations by themselves. Critical race theory, uh, by way of textbook companies being pushed by leftists and by uh, foreign powers who want to see the United States divided and destroyed, by Marxists within this country, obviously Holocaust education or Holocaust uh, miseducation, uh, where they are literally providing fiction uh, and allowing children to believe, and in fact encouraging them to believe that the Holocaust never happened or that it wasn't as bad as it was portrayed historically, all in an attempt to continue uh, to justify anti-Semitism. Jews and Christian, uh, white Christians are, are just, it's open season. That's what critical race theory teaches. That is what the anti-Holocaust education teaches. And then, of course, the outright physical attacks on Israel that we discussed um, have been going on since Israel existed. And will probably continue to until Israel defies the international community that supports the terrorists who harm Israel and finishes the job. As Lori Cardoza more said, they, they agreed to the ceasefire and they probably shouldn't just go into Gaza and finish the job. That doesn't mean civilians. That means the terrorists and those who continue to attack Israelis. They need to be, they need to be stopped permanently, somehow, some way. All right, that's it. Uh, thanks again to my guests. Uh, thanks to my crew, and thanks to you for listening. I appreciate you being with us. We're back tomorrow with Dr. Everett Piper and probably, I believe, uh, Mike Gibbons, Senate candidate on AM 1420 The Answer. Have a great day.